If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We have been walking through the book of Mark for, I don't know, three months, four months, something like that. And uh, we, we like to, I say all the time, if you're visiting this morning, uh, the reason that we walk through the kind of book by book, verse by verse, um, is so that we don't skip any of the good stuff and kind of pick and choose. So this morning, um, we're picking up after Jesus, he's healed a demoniac, someone who was possessed by a demon. Jesus has raised the dead. At this point in his ministry, Jesus has done some pretty incredible things. He's kind of already got his critics in far-off towns, right? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, um, which in this day, the term would be, it would be like Jesus ticked off the Baptist and the Methodist and the Republicans all at the same time. It's kind of it's like what Jesus was doing. And uh, so Jesus was an equal opportunity offender, by the way. He would, he would just offend anybody. So um, today in, Matt, in Mark chapter 6, what I want you to see is that Jesus is kind of riding this wave of glory. I mean, we, we've walked week after week after week, and every town that Jesus walks into, the people receive him, and minus the guys that were a little freaked out that Jesus cast the demon into pigs and they all ran into the ocean. They were like, Jesus, you need to leave town, because that was too freaky. Um, other than them, every other town, all these people, when they embrace Jesus, when they see Jesus, there's like this incredible excitement and this engagement. Over and over, we've heard them say they were astonished or they were amazed or they were filled with wonder. So Jesus, at this point of the story in his ministry, every time that he embraces someone, every time that he sees someone, they're blown away. Every single time that Jesus encounters them and, and, and they receive him, it's like this transformation of life. And so Jesus has gone to the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee and he's entering into his hometown. Now, I, I don't know if you're uh, anything like me, but uh, I take notice when like famous people who um, are from the area like are somewhere, right? I remember a couple years ago, Luke Bryan came back to Lee County to do like a I don't know, a concert or something or whatever, and everybody was freaking out. Like, there's flags and banners, and people were, like, shooting fake fireworks off at the time because it still wasn't legal to have fireworks in Georgia, so everybody was just making do or smuggling them in from Alabama, you know? But it was like this huge fanfare. And so I, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus is going back to his hometown. Jesus is about to have this incredible party and reception and all the ailments and all the fears and all the insecurities of all of his boys, like the people that he hung out with and spent time with. Like he's about to do serious work as Jesus rides this wave of glory. Picking up in Mark chapter 6 verse 1. And he went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And then you see attitude in the scripture. You see this flip. Is not this the carpenter's son? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters are not, are they not with us? And they took offense to him. 
And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his whole household. household. What Jesus is saying right there is, listen, I've been celebrated in every single town that I've went to except here. You guys are throwing me under the bus. Verse 5, and he couldn't do no mighty works. Man, listen, I told the 930 service, This might be, I say often when I'm reading the scripture, but this verse just kind of broke my heart. Everywhere Jesus had been, he had done incredible things. He had done works that that were recorded in history and give us encouragement 2,000 plus years later, every town he went to. And I read these words, in the town that Jesus loved, the people that he adored and cared about, he could do no mighty works there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So I want you to see this turn, this flip. Every village, every town that Jesus had went into before this, the people marveled at Jesus. I mean, his faith, their faith in him would explode. He would heal someone possessed by a demon or raise the dead, do all these incredible things, and people would just marvel, and they were in awe of Jesus. And then we come to a town full of people that Jesus absolutely loves, and he was the one marveling. He was the one astonished by their unbelief. This morning, if you're taking notes, and you don't have to, maybe you can just text this to yourself or to a friend to remember. And it sounds bad. I want to go ahead and kind of give you an apology. Not an apology, but I just want you, I love you guys, okay? And I know like when I start with that, it's like, oh God, he's about to say something stupid, right? Um, I love you. And this, it got a little tense, I would say, at the 930 service because I, I think sometimes we, when we come to church, we won't want to deal with real stuff that we're really facing. It's just like sing some songs and let's talk about some things and then we'll kind of go on our way. But I really want to dig in today. And, and I, I titled point number one this, and when you hear it, you're kind of, it's kind of like, ugh, the progression of misery. All right, if you're taking notes, jot that down. The progression of misery. I can give you a progression this morning. I found it in the scriptures. I looked into the scriptures. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what happened in these people. The first thing that they do, they were skeptics. They were absolutely skeptical. Jesus came in and no doubt the fanfare had followed him and Jesus had been doing all these incredible things. Jesus had been preaching and teaching. He was teaching in the synagogue, declaring the glory of God the Father. And the people in town begin to fold their arms. And you see this slow progression in the text. They kind of begin to fold their arms and say, man... It's just, this is Jesus. Is he really who he says he is? Can he really do what he said he would do? And in an instant, doubt began to permeate the room. Doubt began to fill the conversations. Doubt took a hold of their hearts. As I was sitting with the text, thinking about other places in the Bible, we actually kind of launched the whole story of the cross that way. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they were the first real skeptics that we get to see on the scene. God places them in the garden and says, I've given you everything that you need, just don't eat of this certain tree. I've given you life, I've given you health, I've given you all that you need. I'm going to even let you name some animals. How cool was that? Adam was like, leopard. You know what I'm saying? That was life. This is life, just walking around naming animals. Orangutan, I don't know, you know. 
But there was a day where he had a conversation. I, I should say it more like this. Eve had a conversation with the enemy, and everybody loves to throw Eve under the bus. Oh, it's woman's fault. Adam was the passive man standing there not defending his wife. I'll just say that. I could go down there, but I won't. All right. Passive, standing there, refusing to fight a spiritual battle that should have been his. Eve is standing there and is convinced in that moment to become a skeptic. Now, she wouldn't have defined it that to the way to you if you were to have a conversation with her and say, Eve, are you a skeptic? She'd be like... I don't know, that word hadn't even been created yet. Did God really say that you, you can't eat of this tree? Surely God's not really going to kill you guys if, if, you, if you eat of the tree. Satan begins to whisper and create this idea. So she joins in. She picks up the fruit and her and Adam, you know, remember the passive husband that was there the whole time that refused to fight the spiritual battle that was his to fight? They became skeptics. Now, let's, let's just go ahead. Let's, let's doubt God. And, and what happened, man, they were kicked out of the garden. And they experienced many, many, many years of life, but eventually their, their skepticism, them being skeptics, led to death. I thought about the story. I was like, ah. Oh. And I thought about Abraham and Sarah and you guys, if you're not church, you're not real familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham a son. Abraham's really, really, really old. He promises Sarah, you're, you're going to have a child. This is going to be an incredible thing. And they're like, woo, you know, and then some years pass. And they're like, God's really not going to keep his word, is he? This, this unsettledness begins to spring up in their home. God's really not going to be who he says he is. And so Sarah's like, hey, here, take Hagar, my, my maidservant, and why don't you have a kid by her? And then things got super awkward, and he had two kids. And the promise came about. God kept his promise. Even in the midst of Abraham's stupidity, God kept his promise. But you know what happened? There was a fraction and a brokenness that happened in their lives because they chose to be skeptics. Because they chose to point at God and say, he's really not who he says he is and he's not going to keep his promise. Here, have Hagar. That was their life. A little further in the story, you see Abraham having, man, having to walk through this brokenness Now, I think one more story would be sufficient this morning when we think about the skeptics. But there were 12 spies sent into the land of Canaan. God delivered his people um, from captivity. And God does this miraculous thing by delivering his people and kind of splits the sea. And they walk through it on dry land. And they, they send 12 spies into the land of Canaan and said, Hey, listen, uh, go and see if it is what God has said it is. Like, and they come back and they're like carrying grapes that are the size of watermelons, right? I mean, they're just, there's crazy, awesome stuff there. And they say, surely it is a place that flows with milk and honey. This is absolutely awesome. But 10 of them turn into skeptics. Yeah, it really does flow with milk and honey, but we saw some giants over there, and, and we're like grasshoppers in our own sight. Surely they will overtake us and we won't overtake them. Surely this is not what God intended for us. 
And for 40 years, the children of Israel had to walk around in the wilderness and in a dry and barren wasteland outside of their promise because they chose to be skeptics. But skepticism in the scripture, this is what is interesting to me. I want to show you this progression of misery. First they were skeptics, but then they were critics. Then they begin to vocally say, hey, where did he get those words from? Where did Jesus get this wisdom from? Is that not Mary's son? And, and this is kind of the jab. One theologian said it like this. In Jesus' day, everyone was known by who their father was. If you look through the Bible, James and John, right? Sons of Zebedee, right? You, you see like this progression in Scripture where people are just known by their father's name. One theologian said it's how much disrespect and contempt they had towards Jesus that they would begin to circle the rumor again, possibly. Oh, remember, that was, that was Jesus and Mary. She, you know, when she was a teenager, remember, Joseph had to come in and be the good guy, right? They wouldn't even acknowledge the fact that who his dad was, his earthly dad was, this, this intimate, deep level of hurt and contempt towards Jesus. So their skepticism at first led to criticism. And their criticism led to an offense. The Bible says that they took offense at him. They were offended because they, gen they genuinely began to think more of themselves than they should. See, the Bible says that we shouldn't think more of ourselves than we are. And, and most of us, the reason that we struggle with pride or frustration or even insecurity is because we think we are or we should be at some higher place than we are. The reason that we, we struggle for years, you see the, 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 the racial tension even in America, it's because some person thinks they're better than this person or that person because the color of their skin or the school they went to or the church that they attend or the neighborhood that they grow up in. And it isn't limited to skin color. People begin to think higher of themselves than they shouldn't. And, and humility is not thinking less of yourself. I think C.S. Lewis said it like that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. So what we have even in the scripture is this deep offense. Who is this Jesus to tell me these things? He's just the carpenter's son. And based on their own prejudice and their own wicked heart, they begin to build this deep offense inside of them. Listen, uh, you say, TJ, I don't really like where this is going. I don't like the way this is making me feel this morning. Let me just go ahead and confess to you, me neither. Because <laughs> this text makes me deal with offenses in my own heart. People in my life that I hold bitterness towards, people that I hold resentment towards, people that I just kind of hold the grudge. And you know what I realize? The most broken part of the story is that there's these group of people who come face to face with the healer, the redeemer, the prince of peace, the king of kings, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. These people come face to face with the sovereign God of the universe and they would rather cling to their offense than lay it at his feet. They would rather cling to their grudge than lay it at his feet. Man, Jesus enters the town desiring to do great works and he's encountered with great offense. He gets to heal a few people and leave. I don't want that to be the story of my life. 
I don't want to encounter the God of the universe and think that I'm more than I am. And hear, hear me say this, I'm not hammering on your uniqueness and your beauty and your who you are, like God fearfully and wonderfully made you. And that's, that's why we can't think higher of ourselves. And I'll, I'm going to give you a path to, to eliminate pride, not to eliminate, but to fight against pride and to, to fight against misery in just a minute. But, man, I don't want that to be my story. Came face to face with the God of the universe. But he held on to his misery. He held on to his bitterness. He held on to his pride. He tied the hands of Jesus. And theologically, some of you, you know, we can discuss whatever. The reality is they quench the spirit of God in their lives. Their unrepentant sin, unwilling to humble themselves at the cross of Calvary, they quenched the Holy Spirit. I don't want that to be my story, and I don't want that to be your story. I don't want it to be said of you or of our church that, that the gracious, good Father came and desired to commune with us and sit face to face, but we were unwilling to open our hands up to him and let him have it. Hear me when I say this this morning. Some of us have been wounded deeply in this life. Some of us sit in this room with, with deep wounds that are unimaginable. And we feel vindicated in our offense. We feel like we can hold on to our baggage. But listen, all it does is imprison us. All it does is weigh us down. You have a good father who has seen all and knows all and loves us in spite of it, who desires you to give it to him. The Bible says that he wants to take your garment of heaviness and give you a spirit of praise. That he's the only one. The Bible says this turns ashes to beauty. So why are we so content in wallowing in the ashes and carrying around the same old coat of offense and heaviness when there is a good, a good, good king and a good father who wants to take it and give us new life? People whom Jesus loved long and longed to minister to decided to leave with skepticism. Skepticism led to criticism. Criticism led to an offense. And before they knew it, Jesus was leaving town. And think about it. Every other town he'd been in, they had a party. Jairus' daughter, just a few verses before, is raised to life. Can you imagine the party that Jesus left behind him? The friends who tore the roof off to allow their paralytic friend down to Jesus, who the paralytic friend then like leaves the house with them. Can you imagine the party that they threw that night? But in this town, Jesus leaves. Many people to be healed, many people with brokenness, many people with disease. But Jesus' hands were tied by their skepticism, their criticism, and their deep offense. So, TJ, well, if you're anything like me, and I'll just say, you guys know, I just, I'm not trying to preach at you. I just want to talk with you this morning. The reality is, is every single one of us in this room can probably call to mind in an instant that person. For some, it's a family member. For some, it's a friend. For some, it's a coworker. But on our heart, there's a mark of offense. 
Maybe it was the bully at school. Maybe it was the neighbor. There's this deep offense and this wound in our heart. This morning, what I want you to hear and what I want you to know is that Christ Jesus is present. He hasn't left. He hasn't abandoned you. And with all of your issues, all of my issues, he doesn't reject us, but he receives us and gives us new life. I want you to hear that this morning because some of you, I guarantee you, if you're anything like me, it's easier to listen to the anger in our head than the sermon being preached. Because you've carried an offense for a long time. Hear me well when I say this before we transition to the next little piece of scripture here. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you. Jesus is for you. And he's the only one capable of carrying our baggage. It'll just wear us down and kill us. But he carries it. In fact, he carried it all the way to the cross and nailed it there so that you could go free. Moving on to scripture, I don't, I don't want to miss this part. Prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and they marveled, he marveled at their unbelief. And he went among many villages teaching. A prophet is not without honor. This morning, when we think about the progression of misery, there's also a way to protect ourselves from that misery and pride. And there's a real simple word that you could jot down, that you could look at Scripture and you could jot down, honor, honor. See, these people were able to look for their own prejudice and their own high horse and, and belittle who Jesus was and the work that he wanted to do in their lives. But Roman 12, Romans 12, verse 10 says it like this. Romans 12, I'm going to start in 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How do we protect ourselves from pride, which leads to misery and skepticism and criticism and an offense? We lift people up rather than tear them down. Lift them up. Well, they're not always a good Christian, TJ. Well, neither are you. <laughs> neither am I. I'm pretty terrible sometimes. Does that mean we stop honoring them? You say, well, I don't, I don't have to honor them. I don't like their lifestyle, or I don't like the, the, you know, the color of their skin, or I don't like their political preference, or I don't like yada, 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 yada. I want you to hear me say this well this morning. Every person in the world has the fingerprint of God on them, at the very least. They have the fingerprint of God on them. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, that he made us. So how do, we, how do we run from pride? How do we avoid misery? We honor people. We honor, we endeavor to love one another and to lift each other up. Listen, if we spent all of our time making sure that our brothers and sisters and our friends and the people around us were honored and lifted up and encouraged, we wouldn't have time to focus on if we were getting the pat on the back we thought we deserved or not. Honor. Lift them up. It's amazing what honor can heal, what it would look like in our marriages in times that we feel like we should criticize or could be a skeptic or hold an offense, what it would look like if we just decided to honor Spent less time focusing on who that person was not and spent more time focusing on who God made them to be 
and honored them. I wonder what it would look like in our professional lives and our businesses around our coworkers if we spent less time, less time tripping over who they're not and really begin to thank God for who they are. And I wonder what it would look like in our churches if we refused to be the skeptic, decided that we weren't going to criticize one another, rather we were going to endeavor to outdo one another in showing honor and love. We honor out of obedience, just like the scripture says. We honor from a place of humility, remembering the cross. See, when we remember that we're all guilty, that we're all sinners, all of us, Paul said it, the, and I feel like Paul a lot of times, the chief sinner among you, the moron in the group, the one who's always putting their foot in their mouth and being an idiot, right, and stumbling in sin. That's what Paul was saying. Paul was like, I feel like that's me. I echo that with him. I'm like, yeah, I'm an idiot. I need the grace of God. I need the grace of God. Hear me, you need the grace of God. The ground is level at the cross. No pride can be born in the place that we all know that we're nothing but have been made something by his glorious grace. Pride dies in that environment. And honor lives. So we honor out of obedience. We honor from a place of humility. Remember the cross and we honor Others, because in doing so, we honor their maker, whether you like them or not. Whether they fit all your preferences and your prejudice or not, we honor. Because when Christ could have allowed you and I to sink to the abyss, when Christ could have allowed us to wallow in our sin, you know what Christ did? He went to the cross. And he lifted us up from a place of misery and brokenness and eternal separation from him, and he sat us as heirs in the kingdom of God. He made us sons and daughters. When Christ was fully justified in sending us all to hell, he chose to give us life and raise us up from death to life. So we honor the king. How do we fight pride? How do we avoid misery? How do we run from a lifestyle of skepticism, criticism, and offense? We honor God. Everything that we do, and we endeavor to honor people for the glory of his namesake. Knowing that the only person justified to leave anybody in hell was Jesus. Jesus chose to lift up his sons and daughters and give them life. This morning, I don't want your story to read like this. You say, TJ, that was not the most comfortable scripture we've covered lately. I would agree. You say, why do we cover that? Because I want you to have the different story. I want you to be able to testify from your life that you came face to face with the maker of the universe and you were astonished and forever changed. I want your story not to read like this, that Jesus departed and just went on about his business. I want your story to read with amazement and with glory. And it can. Let me pray for you this morning. We're going to have a song of response. Father, thank you for the gospel. God, the, the glorious truth laid out in scripture that when you could have left us to our own sin and brokenness, you he lifted us up. You mended us. 
You transformed us by the power of your spirit. And God, I just pray this morning over our church and over our hearts, Lord, if, if anybody in the room's like me, Lord, then I know even during this sermon, God, there are men and women, boys and girls in this room that, are, that have wrestled with an offense. And God, I just I pray over my own heart and the, the hearts in this room today, God, Lord, that, that they would stop white-knuckling that offense and they would just open their hands. In this time of prayer, just, God, give us the grace and boldness to lay these things at your feet, knowing that you'll take them. You don't reject us, you receive us, and you call us your own. I thank you for that in Jesus' name.